0: Welcome to Finance Against Slavery and Trafficking, the podcast. Each episode, we'll take you on a deep dive into the connections between global finance and modern slavery and human trafficking. We'll look at all the different ways that the financial sector can harness its leverage to end modern slavery, forced labor and human trafficking, and bring you a roundup of all the latest developments from ESG regulation to revealing research. On today's episode we look at the changing disclosure and due diligence landscape. We hear from experts on the British and Australian Modern Slavery Acts and learn about the new mandatory human rights due diligence framework under consideration at the EU. We'll also hear from a provider of a compliance platform and from experts involved in the development of new corporate benchmarks and standards on modern slavery about what they mean for financial sector actors. Let's get started. In 2015, in a pioneering move, the British Parliament adopted a Modern Slavery Act. Building on earlier legislation in California, Section 54 of the Act broke new ground, requiring businesses that meet certain threshold criteria to disclose what steps they're taking to identify and address modern slavery risks in their operations and their supply chains. The British Modern Slavery Act was seen by many as a model for supply chain transparency. In 2018, the Australian Parliament followed suit with its own Modern Slavery Act, which also contained reporting obligations relating to modern slavery risks. Other governments in Canada and Norway, for example, have also considered legislation based on this model. Both the UK and Australian governments have continued to refine their approaches to implementing the reporting obligations under their respective statutory frameworks, issuing guidance to businesses about different risks such as those arising from COVID-19, both governments have continued and still continue to study ways to strengthen enforcement. What is the impact of this legislation on the financial sector? To begin to answer that question, I turn to two of the leading organizations in this field. First to the Business and Human Rights Resource Center and second to Walk Free. I'm very pleased to be joined today by Patricia Carrier. Patricia, welcome to Fast the Podcast.
1: Thank you. Good to be here.
0: Patricia, you wrote a fantastic piece recently for the Business and Human Rights Resource Centre called Modern Slavery Act, Five Years of Reporting. Let's begin at the beginning. What is the Modern Slavery Act?
1: Modern Slavery Act in the UK is a piece of legislation that was enacted in 2015. And I think it's important to note that it was a law that was trying to consolidate all the crimes of modern slavery into one piece of legislation in order to strengthen the laws and and sort of um, ensure that that criminal law aspect was in top form, so to speak. The law also included provisions for victims, victim support, identification of victims, and that sort of thing. It wasn't until later that Section 54, which is the transparency and supply chains reporting provision, was added. So it was sort of, um, I don't want to say an afterthought, but it wasn't in the initial thinking of this piece of legislation. And it was designed and developed by a group of stakeholders, including civil society, trade unions, businesses, and investors. So it really was a broad network of stakeholders who wanted to ensure, basically, that. Modern slavery was addressed within the goods and services that were being provided to people and that it was eliminated from global supply chains. I do think that one of the main motivators was by business in order to ensure a level playing field. And it's not surprising that the companies that were behind this reporting requirement are those that we now see are producing quite good reports as compared to the universe of companies that are meant to be publishing under this law. So those are the Marks & Spencers, Tesco, and other very large companies that have been doing quite a bit on human rights issues and labor rights issues over the years and felt that there was an unfair competitive advantage. They were competing unfairly against companies that perhaps were not making the same types of efforts. So we saw Section 54 added to the Modern Slavery Act after it was initially enacted in 2015. Now, the logic behind this, as I've already noted, was to ensure a level playing field among companies to try to eliminate modern slavery and extreme labor abuse within supply chains. And it was thought that by having this more light touch approach and allowing companies to have sort of ultimate flexibility within their reporting, so not being too prescriptive, this would really generate a sort of race to the top. So companies would want to undertake robust and meaningful due diligence by implementing policies, putting in place training, having risk assessments in place, risk identification, and that they would want to be very transparent about these efforts. And of course, being competitive by nature as they are, this would sort of make companies want to outperform their peers. Unfortunately, that's not what we've seen happen over the last five years. And that is what led to this report that we published in February at the Business and Human Rights Resource Center, just to really clearly illustrate the inherent weaknesses within the law, but also showing what the corporate response has been to the law over the last five years.
0: So before we come to the findings of that report, Patricia, You've mentioned section 54, can you just spell out for us what that is and and what it requires of companies?
1: Section 54 is a reporting requirement. So companies of a certain size, which are those that have an annual revenue of at least 36 million pounds, and that operate within the UK. So provide goods or services within the UK, they don't necessarily have to be based in the UK, they can be based abroad. They have to report annually. So for each year that they meet these requirements, they have to publish a statement that sets out the efforts that have been undertaken in the previous financial year to address modern slavery risks within their operations and supply chains. So it's really meant to have a global reach. It's a bit tricky because of course, it is estimated that about 16,000 UK-based entities are required to report every year, but that number changes annually. So it's really hard to come up with a set definitive list of companies that are required to report. And of course, it's even more challenging to identify companies based abroad that are meant to be reporting under this legislation. As I said earlier, there's no prescriptive content that is required of companies to include within their statements. But the legislation does recommend that companies cover six criteria in an effort to address their efforts to identify risks of modern slavery. And that includes any information related to business structure and supply chains, policies, due diligence, risk assessment, effectiveness of these efforts, and training. At the moment, a company can explicitly state that it has taken no steps in the previous financial year. And this is still compliant with the law.
0: So the requirement is to report what has been done, even if that is to report that nothing has been done. Exactly. And what are the consequences of reporting that nothing has been done? Or indeed, what are the consequences of not reporting?
1: So at the moment, there are no consequences for reporting that no actions have been taken. At most, I think we can hope that perhaps Consumers or civil society will flag this and take this up with the company directly. But under the law, this is compliance. So there's nothing that legally would would happen to a company for reporting this. And to be fair, I think in the sort of five years that I looked at modern slavery statements, I think I saw a handful that had these that explicitly said it had taken no steps. That's not to say a lot of statements. Basically said nothing. Um, So they may have been reporting under the different criteria without really saying much. But that's a separate issue that we'll discuss in a moment. Under the legislation, the Secretary of State is able to seek an injunction in the High Court to compel a company that has failed to report to do so. However, that would require the governments having monitored which companies are in scope of the legislation which have reported and which haven't. At the start of the legislation, when it was first enacted, the government had not undertaken or put in place any mechanisms to monitor which companies fell in scope of the legislation and then therefore tracked which ones had been reporting and which had not. So there was no monitoring mechanism. And as a result, there was no use of the enforcement mechanism. So there has been no injunction sought by the government thus far. There are estimates that roughly half of the companies that are required to report under the act are doing so. This has been a consistent data point for the past couple of years, and yet the government has still not used the injunction mechanism. On the one hand, I can kind of understand it's quite costly and time-consuming to use the courts to try to enforce the legislation, the reporting requirement part of the legislation, on the other, it means that companies have failed to report regularly, or they might report one year but not the next, etc. The point being, there's a high level of non-compliance without absolutely no legal accountability in place for those companies.
0: And that's what you found in, in this report, is that right? A high level of non-compliance?
1: So compliance with regard to the reporting requirements is interesting because I think there's different levels of compliance. You have the companies that are failing to report full stop. And again, there's quite a high percentage of those companies that are simply not reporting under the legislation, either at all or on an annual basis. I should note, under the law, when a company publishes a statement, that statement must be approved by the board. It must be signed by a director. And there must be a link to the statement on the company's website on the homepage of the website if the company has a website many companies don't so at the business and human rights resource center we also tracked whether the statements that we were collecting met those minimum compliance requirements as we called them by our estimates we had collected about 17 18,000 modern slavery statements through our project through the modern slavery registry when we tracked the minimum requirements compliance among those companies, we found that only about 30% were meeting all three of those requirements. So you have that compliance data point as well. So you have thousands of companies failing to report. Of those companies that are reporting, many are not meeting the minimum requirements required by the law. And then you have a third level of compliance, in my opinion, which is meeting the spirit of the law. And that's whether companies are actually providing information that gives the reader, the stakeholder, any idea of what the risks are within that company's operations and supply chains and whether they are addressing those risks appropriately or adequately. And and you have a very, very, very low level of companies that are really meeting the spirit of the law and what it had intended when it was enacted.
0: So this is a very interesting Regulatory design that we're talking about here. If I've understood correctly, Patricia, at the outset, the law required companies to report what they were doing against these requirements, but left it to the companies themselves or perhaps civil society or researchers, academia to identify not only individual compliance, but patterns and what might look like good practice in this area. Is that right, that from the outset, the expectation was that somebody other than government was going to be monitoring what companies were reporting and perhaps, therefore, creating the incentives for this race to the top that you mentioned at the beginning?
1: That's right. I think, and actually, in the statutory reporting guidance that was published by government... It explicitly states that if a company fails to report or if they don't meet the standard that is expected of them with regard to the content of their reporting, it would be up to consumers, civil society, and investors to hold companies to account. So there really was, from the start, a reliance on actors other than government, really calling on companies to not only report, but meet as I said, the spirit of what was intended with, with that reporting provision. And, you know, we see now that the government is playing catch up. So what I didn't mention earlier is that the Business and Human Rights Resource Center attempted to fill the gap left by government with regard to that lack of monitoring and enforcement. And so we established the Modern Slavery Registry, which was a website that collected modern slavery statements published by companies. And we did this because this is a much easier way to monitor whether those companies are required to report or are doing so. And we operated this registry for about five years. And during that time, there was a broad group of stakeholders that were calling on government to develop its own registry because, of course, this should be the role of the government. And finally, last year, or I should say two years ago, I believe the government announced that it was going to launch its own registry, and it did indeed just launch earlier this year in 2021.
0: Patricia explains that compliance rates have been higher in sectors that face consumer and investor scrutiny and lower in private and non-consumer facing firms. What's more, she says, a strong modern slavery statement doesn't guarantee real prevention of labour exploitation risks.
1: And I should just note that even though some of these companies are producing better disclosure and perhaps even have in place better practices to try to identify their risks and address those risks, we still see a huge gap between what is put in a modern slavery statement and what we're seeing in practice on the ground. And I think a really good example of that is the Boohoo case. So an an online apparel retailer has a decent modern slavery statement, but yet we know that there are, you know, really terrible working conditions and low wages happening in their factories here in the UK to the point where an independent investigation was undertaken looking at those working conditions. So, you know, a lot more has to be done to monitor and perhaps verify whether the policies and practices that are put on paper in a modern slavery statement are actually having any impact on the ground among workers.
0: So are you saying there, Patricia, that there may be modern slavery in the Boohoo business environment, let's call it, that's not being adequately addressed through the Section 54 reporting framework? Or are you saying, which might be slightly different, that the types of violations and shortcomings in protections of labor standards that we see in the Boohoo environment may not be covered by the narrow gauge of the Modern Slavery Act?
1: That's a really good question. And I would argue it's the latter. So, what that independent investigation found, and what you know, what we see in, and so in every supply chain is a lot of substandard working conditions and pitiful wages that don't amount to modern slavery crimes, but nonetheless leave millions of workers in very precarious and vulnerable positions.
0: After speaking with Patricia Carrier, I was curious to know whether these broad patterns of limited and non-compliance held for the financial sector. To find out, I turned to Dr. Catherine Bryant, European Engagement Manager at the leading anti-slavery organisation, Walk Free. Catherine, recently Walk Free published a study with the great title Beyond Compliance in the Finance Sector, a review of statements produced by asset managers under the UK Modern Slavery Act. What was that piece of research and where did it come from?
2: Thanks, James. Um, The report Beyond Compliance, a review of statements produced by asset managers under the UK Modern Slavery Act, is the result of a collaboration between Walk Free, WikiRate and the Business and Human Rights Resource Centre. It's actually part of a series of reports we've released over the last few years, looking at how different sectors are reporting under the UK legislation. Section 54 of the Modern Slavery Act here in the UK requires organisations with a turnover of over 36 million pounds per annum to report on what they are or are not doing to respond to modern slavery in both their direct operations and also in their supply chains. Uh, We previously released a report looking at the hotel sector, and this is our second report looking at asset managers. We're hoping to also look at the garment industry going forward. To pull this report together, we first of all assess all statements against what we call core metrics, And these are 18 metrics which are derived from the Home Office guidance that accompanies the legislation. And these metrics include measuring if organisations have met, first of all, the minimum requirements of the legislation. Um, And these are three metrics looking at whether a statement's been signed by a CEO or equivalent, whether it's been approved by the board, and whether it also appears on the organisation homepage. We also, within those core metrics, Look at other elements of the Home Office guidance, such as due diligence, whistleblowing mechanisms, policies, training, etc. For this particular report, looking at asset managers, we also went a step further and developed a series of metrics that are specific to investors. In this instance, we looked at whether asset managers were disclosing the actions they were taking to engage with their portfolio on assessing modern slavery risk. All of the assessments that we do uh, across all sectors is done through a citizen science approach. So we partner with world leading universities to assess the statements as part of their master's programmes. This one, for example, we worked with Australian National University and the Rights Lab at the University of Nottingham. And then we put these through peer review, thorough QA, obviously our own internal processes. And then we analyse the findings to see if we can look at the rates of disclosure within particular sectors and to identify gaps and areas for improvement.
0: Fantastic. How many asset managers are we talking about here?
2: It's a very good question and actually not a very easy one to answer. Um, so the first thing we have to do is obviously define the scope of the actual assessment that we're doing. And there is no currently no list, both in the UK and also in Australia, of who should be reporting. Uh, so we actually have to go through our own scoping exercise to identify those organisations that meet the £36 million per annum threshold and also have some form of operations within the UK. We found 91 asset managers who we believe should be reporting, but only found 79 statements from those 91 asset managers.
0: So 12 not reporting, what does that mean for them?
2: Technically, they could be liable for some civil penalties through the UK legislation. However, we've not seen any of that happening to date. So at the moment, not very much happens for those who have not reported.
0: Okay, so 79 out of 91, that's what 80 something percent are reporting. and what do we what do we learn from their reports over time?
2: So there's three key things that we found um, from this assessment, and I would say just overall, it's pretty shocking, like the, the levels of compliance are, are still not where we would expect them to be six years after the legislation was enacted. First of all, we found that over 50% of companies failed to meet all the minimum requirements of the Act. So they're the three metrics that I mentioned earlier of making sure that it's signed by the CEO, approved by the board and appears on the website.
0: 50% of companies didn't meet those three basic threshold requirements. Is that right? Yeah, exactly. That, do you have any findings or hypotheses about why we're seeing those low rates of compliance?
2: That's a great question. I think part of the reason is there's no recourse right there's no penalties that are being implemented for those that aren't failing are failing to meet those requirements. i also think that because it is very difficult to identify who is in scope and who should be doing these pieces of legislation sometimes companies protect well say that they are failing to meet the requirements because they didn't know that they had to to you know either release a statement or had misunderstood the legislation or the company guidance and i think The final reason is that the guidance that accompanies the legislation is just that. It's guidelines for companies to follow of what these statements should include. And I think it's very unclear for companies what they should be doing within their statements because it's not mandatory at this point.
0: So that differs from the situation in Australia, for example, where there are mandatory reporting criteria. Is that right?
2: Exactly. In Australia, they've learned from some of the gaps in the UK legislation, and we see that they have taken action to make the guidance, for example, compulsory, it's really explicit what companies should be reporting on. And for investors, it's also really explicit of what they should be focusing on.
0: Has it always been clear, Dr. Bryant, that the Act in the UK applies to investors?
2: It's not clear. And so in the Australian legislation, it's really clear that investors, the financial sector should be reporting. Throughout the the guidance in Australia, there are examples of how superannuation funds should be reporting, uh, clear case studies, etc. In the UK legislation, there's no mention of investments, portfolios, financial sector at all. And also, there's confusion around the threshold as well. In Australia, it says of the 100 million, of those who have a turnover of over 100 billion Aussie dollars have to report under the legislation if that includes investment income. So they use consolidated revenue and that clearly includes funds from services, goods and investments. In the UK, it's actually the 36 million pounds per annum threshold is tied just to goods and services. So there's a bit of a vague grey area of whether investors should actually be reporting under the legislation at all because we're not sure if they're falling within scope or not. So the legislation in the UK is vague on both threshold and also what the content of the statement should be saying. Um, And that's borne out by the findings of this report, which shows obviously that we've got this low level of minimum compliance, but also that companies are not organisations or asset managers are not doing very much to go beyond compliance and actually revealing what they're doing to engage both in their direct operations, their supply chains, but then also going further and looking at their investment portfolios.
0: Right. So let's dig into that a little bit. You're saying that in the Modern Slavery Act statements that we do see from asset managers, they aren't telling us much about what they're actually doing internally by way of what training or due diligence. What, what do we learn and not learn from those statements?
2: So when we look at just their supply chains and due diligence, we see, again, a similar percentage to minimum the minimum requirements percentage. So we see that over 50% did not disclose conducting any due diligence on their modern saving risks to address modern saving risks in their supply chains. And again, that's pretty shocking. Six years on from the legislation that we're not even talking about what are the risks within supply chains. I will say the statements from asset managers tend to be very thin. They don't tend to be looking at engaging with what risk means for that particular organisation in any depth. They tend to be very short as well. Um, so a little bit of information around training, maybe a little bit around identifying some risk within their supply chain, such as cleaning companies or catering companies or construction, and then moving on very quickly and signing off and that's it. So they're not very detailed. and definitely I think just not very seriously engaging with what risk means for asset managers. And then the third, the kind of the final piece on this, the third key finding here, is that we found that over two thirds of asset managers are not disclosing, conducting any form of due diligence on their human right, on human rights on modern slavery within their portfolios. So there's very limited information about what they're doing um, to look at their investments, and just not really engaging or thinking that investments is actually a risk exposed them to risk to modern slavery.
0: Which is ironic, given that the whole raison d'etre of of the capital markets is about risk management in a sense and intermediation of risk. Where you do see asset managers looking at their own supply chains, how deep are they going? Are they just limiting themselves to tier one, for example?
3: Yeah,
2: definitely. So they're focusing very much just looking on direct operations in tier one. So you'll often find statements around, you know, we, anyone hired directly by organization goes through our HR policies, meaning that they're very low risk of being exploited. And then going maybe some of the better statements going a little bit further and, and thinking about those companies they may engage, such as cleaning staff, cleaning offices, for example, and how they may be engaging with the agencies providing that labor to ensure that they're not causing exploitation. But as I said, that's kind of the the better end of the statement. They're not going kind of beyond that at this point.
0: That reference to there being better statements is an interesting one. What, What is the distribution here of the quality of statements? Are they all very similar or is there a great variance in the quality and depth of these statements?
2: It's an interesting question. Most most of the statements are very similar and we saw a little bit of evidence of maybe certain consultancy firms supporting with developing these statements so they read a little bit like i identify with some of the statements within the actual document itself there are the usual kind of leaders in this space. So some companies doing a lot more, but these are the ones that tend to be very vocal about their, their, you know, ESG policies and what they're doing uh, to consider modern slavery or human rights risk more broadly in their portfolios. So we do get some leaders and then you kind of got a bunch of people in the middle that are doing just the bare minimum to get by, and then you have a few laggards at the end, those that obviously aren't reporting at all, and then those that are just writing off modern slavery risk and saying, well, the financial sector as a whole is low risk and therefore we don't need to do anything more on this and disclose anything else, and then signing off and that being the full statement.
0: Dr. Bryant's insights on the difference between the UK and Australian Modern Slavery Act and how they apply to the finance sector made clear to me I needed to talk to an expert on the Australian Act. So I reached out to Alexander Coward, a key figure in the development and implementation of the Australian Act. Previously with the Australian Federal Department of Home Affairs, Alex is now an advisor at Pillar 2, a business and human rights advisory firm in Australia.
4: So the the Modern Slavery Act is a quite unique piece of transparency legislation here in Australia. It was introduced in, in 2018. To our our national parliament and and entered into force at the start of 2019. And what the legislation does is require large businesses and other entities like universities or or charities to prepare annual public statements that explain their actions to assess and address modern slavery risks across their global supply chains and their global operations. The Act really builds on some learnings from similar legislation that that we've seen in in the United Kingdom and, and California and It sets out a a number of unique features, and and one of those is that the statements that businesses must produce are placed on a a central online register, which is managed by the Australian government. These statements also have to respond to mandatory criteria for content, which align very closely to the UN guiding principles on on business and human rights and and the standards for due diligence set out in those. And it's also been accompanied by a great deal of, of guidance and, and proactive engagement, both from government, but also from business, civil society and investors. To date, we, we have a, just under 800 statements on the Australian Government Register, and we're expecting that number to jump exponentially over the, the coming weeks as statements from these Australian financial year entities who reported at the end of March are published.
0: Great. That was indeed my next question. How many have uh, have reported? But it sounds like what roughly a quarter so far, but more coming soon. What's the consequences of not reporting?
4: So the, the Australian government took, I think, a, a really interesting position in regards to the implementation of, of the Modern Slavery Act. And one of the, the key principles that that guided the government's work was, was that this was a, a new issue for Australian businesses. And it was something that perhaps unlike for, for business counterparts in the European Union or or even the United States, an issue that they hadn't necessarily been exposed to before. And and so government said the legislation will will come into force and and effectively there'll there'll be a three-year period of of implementation for businesses to get to grips with this issue, to publish their first two or or three statements. And and at that point in time, after three years, the legislation will be reviewed by the Australian Parliament and amendments and changes made as required. So for these first three years, we, we have a situation where the Act does not intentionally include financial penalties, but it does include a power for the government to name entities that may have failed to comply with the legislation. And that's quite a unique feature of the Australian Modern Slavery Act. It's not something that's present in in similar legislation overseas. And and so one of the big questions uh, here in Australia for businesses and for civil society and and other stakeholders is is whether and how uh, the Australian government might choose to use that power to name going forwards.
0: Is it fair then to say, Alex, that the the theory of change embedded in this legislation is similar to the approach taken in the UK Modern Slavery Act, the idea being that through this reporting, third parties such as civil society actors, consumers, investors, researchers can study the information reported and reach conclusions, provide analysis about performance by those companies? Is it the same theory of change? That's right. It's it's the same theory of change, but within,
4: I think, a, a stronger legislative framework. And, and we've seen the UK government announce some changes that will amend the UK Modern Slavery Act to bring it to the same level as, as the Australian law. And really key to that is is a foundational assumption that that, as you said, transparency is is a vital driver for for business action on, on modern slavery. And,
0: So a question that probably is on the minds of some of our listeners in the financial sector is a simple one. Does the Act apply to to financial institutions of different types?
4: It does. And one of the the key parts of of the implementation of of the Australian Act has, has been government and other stakeholders being very clear that their expectation is that financial institutions will Report not just on their operations and, and supply chains in, in a narrow sense, so who's cleaning the office or where the staff uniforms are coming from, but they will look at modern slavery risks across uh, investment portfolios as well. And, and that's something that, that we've seen financial institutions in Australia really grappling with over the last 12 months.
0: So that's downstream risks as well as upstream risks in a sense, looking at the potential links between clients and modern slavery risk. Is that right? It is so
4: the the act itself doesn't
0: require reporting on customers' actions
4: explicitly. however, for the the financial sector, the government's indicated that it does expect to see that that upstream perspective and and that I think has has been a real driver for action on this issue from Australian financial institutions, whether they be banks or or investors. and that's really, I think also created a, a circular system where where investors are talking to their investees about modern slavery risks because not only do they see the importance of addressing those risks from a sustainability of investments perspective, but also because the investor themselves needs to report on possible risk areas as part of the investor's modern slavery statement. And I think that helps contribute to a, a rigorous compliance process.
0: Now, while the UK and Australia have focused on disclosure, in Europe the regulatory approach focuses more on due diligence, asking companies to take certain steps to identify and address risks. And the risks in question are not just forced labour and slavery risks, but often a broader suite of human rights risks. France and the Netherlands already have legislation taking that approach in force. And a range of other countries, including Germany, Switzerland, Austria and Spain, are all considering adopting similar legislation. But the initiatives with perhaps the largest potential impact on global finance are those underway in Brussels at the European Union. To learn more about them, I spoke with Chloe Cranston of Anti-Slavery International. Chloe told me that the push for mandatory human rights due diligence laws stems in part from a belief that voluntary reporting hasn't worked.
3: Yeah, the, the UK Monslavery Slavery Act is a really good example, or demonstrative example, rather, of why we need stronger legislation. So anti-slavery, we were involved in pushing and supporting the introduction of the Monslavery Slavery Act in 2015 in the UK, including in Section 54 of it, which is the Transparency and Supply Chains Clause. But it's been very much proven to be insufficient. And what that law is, it's a reporting requirement. So companies simply have to report on what action they're taking to address mon slavery in their supply chains. That doesn't translate into companies being mandated to take action in line with the UNGPs. It should. And when it was introduced, there was this presumption that it would lead companies to undertaking the relevant actions. And there was also a lot of focus when it was introduced that thinking that the consumer pressure, for example, would act as a watchdog. And it's really not worked. What we've seen with the UK Modern Slavery Act is there's still a vast proportion of companies which fail to comply at all, i.e. they don't even produce a statement and then the vast majority of companies which are producing a statement just approach it like a tick box exercise. It's you know They might have it even be paying lawyers to write it and the information within is, is purely just to comply with the law and tick that box. And it isn't about them actually taking meaningful action within their supply chains to address forced labour. But that's not to say there aren't some companies and there certainly are a whole list of companies that are taking meaningful actions to address forced labour in the supply chains. And arguably, some of that likely is as a result of the Mono slavery Act. But what we've seen there is this very two-tier approach. So we have a group of companies which are, have been taking action, likely driven by a multitude of factors, not just Monslavery Act, which continue to be undercut by the vast majority of companies which aren't. So one of the other drivers around mandatory human rights and environmental due diligence, one of the, <laughs> the most off-cited business cases for it is to level the playing field is to require all companies to undertake human rights and environmental due diligence in their supply chain, and for it not just to be voluntary and not just one set of companies which do, and to level that playing field so that no company can be undercut by another simply because they're taking steps to respect human rights. So when the EU law started to be discussed, uh, certainly the UK model was looked at, and, and it was really... I think, quite a clear consensus that a reporting approach alone, which is what, what the One Slavery Act has, is insufficient.
0: Right. So this level playing field argument, is that part of why this is emerging at the European level rather than the, the member, European member state level, that there's a belief that if you're going to have a, a, the introduction of various systems in, in the EU, it would be better to create one level playing field across the European common market?
3: Yeah, so in terms of the business arguments around this, so yes, I think just important to clarify that those pushing for the law is not only civil society and human rights activists. It's very much become different groups of of stakeholders. And last year... A whole group of businesses operating in the EU came out in support for mandatory human rights and environmental due diligence. I would say the devil is in the detail there. Some of them are not supporting as strong a law as we would certainly be pushing for. And there's a, it's a great risk that corporate lobbying could lead to another tick box law. <laughs> However, many of the businesses are arguing and saying that they need this EU level law in order to harmonise the different what they call the patchwork of legislation appearing across Europe. So we have, well, in the UK, which see isn't part of the EU anymore, but we have the on Slavery Act. Belgium is now looking at its proposal. Germany is set to introduce a law. France has the duty of vigilance law. Switzerland, again, not the EU, but also Europe, had a referendum on this last year as well. So it's, it's really a very growing movement. And it's moved exponentially fast, really, in the past 18 months or so in terms of how many countries are now looking set to introduce either to introduce national legislation as well as to support the need for an EU law?
0: Right. So what's on the table in Brussels and and how is it different from what's come before?
3: So the European Commission is the main body to watch. I won't try and <laughs> explain how the different EU institutions work, but essentially the European Commission acts as the executive body mm-hmm. of the EU. And the ball is really in their court. So what we're looking at now is last April, April 2020, they announced that they would, well, the Commissioner for Justice, Didier Vanders, he announced that he would table a proposal for mandatory human rights and environmental due diligence. Then a consultation was put forward by the European Commission late last year to gather views from all interested stakeholders. And MHREDD, so mandatory human rights and environmental due diligence, is being incorporated into a wider what's called sustainable corporate governance file. And this includes both the European Commission's proposal to impose director duties. And that's the legal responsibility of corporate directors, i.e. the board of directors, in relation to human rights abuses and environmental harm. And then the other half of the proposal is around mandatory human rights and environmental due diligence at anti-slavery, our focus is very much on the latter rather than director duties piece.
0: So the director's duties is, in a sense, a new piece that we haven't seen at the national level. Is that right, that we would actually see a change in the the kinds of issues that directors are expected to turn their minds to in making their, their business decisions?
3: Yeah, and there is a lot of pushback from this by businesses and various member states, as I understand it. So essentially what this is, is. It's the legislation would seek to integrate a long-term sustainability perspective and human rights perspective into the decision-making process of EU company boards. And concretely, this may force boards, for example, to take into account the voices of other groups, such as trade unions or NGOs, when making strategic decisions. And it would also mean individual directors would be legally responsible for what happens in their value chains. Many businesses, as I said, are opposing this. But ultimately, what it is about is about building long-term human rights, respect and sustainability into the heart of businesses.
0: Right. So this is the proposal that's being developed, as you said, by Commissioner Reinders. At some point in the complicated EU legislative process, I assume that this, if it, it gets legs, will come before the member states or their representatives in the EU parliament. What do we know about the position of the different forces within the EU Parliament on these ideas?
3: So the European Parliament in March this year, they voted on their own initiative report on this, and that essentially means it's their own proposal. So the European Parliament, and it was drafted by the Legal Committee with input from other committees of the European Parliament, they put forward the proposal and the European Parliament has voted in favour, and that's their way of essentially trying to lobby the European Commission Mm -hmm. um, themselves. It will then go back to the Parliament as well. Once the European Commission puts forward its proposal, it will then be debated by the Parliament and by Member States. So it's a lot of kind of back and forth, this whole process. But various things that we do know is that the European Parliament, for example, did include liability in their proposal, They did include that the law should cover full supply chains or value chains, that it should include meaningful engagement with stakeholders.
0: So, Chloe, a lot going on in Europe, but is this really just a European discussion or are these changes, if they do happen, going to have impacts beyond Europe's borders?
3: Certainly, and this is why we're concentrating on it, on why anti-slavery is concentrating on the EU law so much, EU is the world's largest single market, and its supply chains or value chains stretch around the world to every country. And so, if we manage to get a meaningful and robust human rights and environmental due diligence law in place at the EU level, it could really have an extremely transformative impact across the world on on many supply chains, as long as it is meaningful and robust and meaningfully enforced as well. And so we're certainly looking beyond EU borders. And then that's about its impact on producing countries. I think it's also worth just highlighting that, What the companies we're looking at being in scope is not just EU companies, i.e., companies with jurisdiction in the EU member state, it's any company operating in the EU market, i.e., companies which import into or onto the EU market. And for example, this is likely to include UK businesses, which (laughs) clearly still have strong links uh, with the EU market.
0: If we look across all of these different initiatives, Do you think we're going to see convergence over the the medium to long term and if so given the the gravity in world trade of a market like the eu are jurisdictions like the united kingdom and australia that have had this much lighter touch approach to modern slavery reporting are they going to be forced to move more in that direction in their legislative frameworks
3: so I also work very much on the UK agenda in particular, and we're very much hoping that that does happen. The UK was world leading with introducing the Modern Slavery Act, but is now at severe risk of falling behind. And given the EU law is going to be introduced and have likely a significant amount of UK companies within scope, essentially the UK government has a choice of either falling behind and having to introduce the law reactively, or proactively actually looking at introducing it in a more immediate time frame. And notably last week, ASOS, which is a large UK online retailer, which sells, I think, in over 100 markets around the world, clothes retailer, it published an op-ed which called for a UK mandatory human rights due diligence law based on the UK bribery law And very much one of their ASOS's rationale for calling for the law is due to what's happening in the EU, as well as much of the level playing field argument, which I uh, explained earlier. And so also hoping that the same happens in Australia, the US, Japan, New Zealand. And I would also say that I think it's a mistake to focus it on solely the global, the so-called global north There's also many discussions around mandatory human rights due diligence and generally human rights due diligence, for example, in Latin America. And, you know, there's progress in in various countries also around national action plans relating to the UNGPs. So I think it's also important to see this as a global effort towards corporate accountability.
0: What, though, does it look like in operational terms for a company to comply with all these laws? What tools are out there to help businesses with this due diligence and reporting? One interesting solution is offered by Central. I spoke with their vice president of product management, Shailesh Alawani. Shailesh, tell us a bit about yourself and Central. What do you do at Central?
5: My name is Shailesh Alawani. I'm the vice president of product management at Central. And Central is a risk and diligence solution provider. Central's platform allows companies to identify, monitor, and mitigate risks within their company, as well as within their third parties and supply chain. Central provides tools to automate the end-to-end risk management process. It provides workflows to follow up on the items that need attention, and also provides analytics to gain insights. The platform can be used for multiple types of uh, risk and due diligence use cases. We have clients using it for operational due diligence, the traditional third-party risk management, and for compliance with laws such as Australia's Modern Slavery Act.
0: Interesting. So modern slavery risk is one of the risks that you offer products and services around?
5: That is correct.
0: What are the kinds of things that you can provide clients to help them identify and manage their modern slavery risks?
5: Right. So before we go into that, let you know. First of all, the Centrus platform has a product called MSA three hundred and sixty or Modern Slavery Act three hundred and sixty, which is basically tailored for the Modern Slavery Act compliance. It is a one-stop solution for complying with Modern Slavery laws and obligations. Now, the requirements for Modern Slavery laws uh, generally fall into the following categories. Right. Number one, companies have to some side of risk identification. They need to identify risks of modern slavery practices in their operations and Mm -hmm. their supply chains through detailed assessments. The second is they have to demonstrate effectiveness of actions taken to address those modern slavery risks. And third, there is generally a component of a statement or a report or something that they have to submit, right? Right. So MSA 360 provides a three-pronged approach to help comply with these requirements. First uh, is through product workflows that allow companies to assess, identify, and remediate issues. This includes automation to ensure that organizations can carry out risk and due diligence processes at scale and across all their partners and suppliers. Second, we provide the necessary content that is needed for end-to-end compliance. This includes policy templates pre-built reporting templates, training guides, and other material. So it's really a holistic approach to worse compliance. And third, for organizations that do not have the resources to manage the process, we provide additional services where our team carries out the assessment. Our team manages the follow-ups with suppliers and helps with statements and other things.
0: Great. You mentioned effectiveness there, Shalesh. That's obviously something that the Australian government has signalled it's going to be looking at increasingly in coming years in Modern Slavery Act statements. Position under the UK Modern Slavery Act is a little less clear and the, the EU that's developing its own human rights due diligence arrangements is thinking hard about what it means to have effective human rights due diligence. How does the platform help a client Demonstrate the effectiveness of the measures it's taking?
5: Yeah, so great question again. Let's just go and give you an overview of how it actually helps overall, right? Number one is mm-hmm. let's talk about the risk assessment that MSA 360 provides. We start with a pre-built, some pre built assessment templates and workflows so that companies can get started quickly. Now, these assessment templates have been created by legal and regulatory experts at Central based on their extensive review of the regulation, right? So we have gone, looked at the laws, read the, the details and come up with these questionnaires and templates. Companies can use that as a starting point or they can use their own, right? If they have. The application also comes with a pre-built risk scoring methodology that is tied to the assessment. This allows clients to wait and risk each area or each section or a question and then the application calculates and aggregates scores automatically. Now, clients can publish these assessments to their partners and suppliers. As responses and evaluations are finalized, MSA 360 categorizes these supplies into risk categories based on the scoring. There are detailed dashboards that show the aggregated risk maps across the portfolio, and there are drill downs for granular risk analysis at an individual risk domain areas. This is truly needed to understand what type of risk is present. So is there an industry related risk? Is there employment practices related risk? Or is there policy and governance related risk, right? The reason this is important is because your process does not stop at just the assessment. Now you have to take action, right? But the right action and the right remediation that we just talked about for demonstrating continuous improvement will depend on what are you addressing what type of risk you're addressing, along with the factors like criticality and and the, the type of supplier and other things, right? So from there, organizations can create those issues or gaps that we talk about, right? This is, again, a part of continuous improvement. Not everything is going to be fixed on day one, but once you document the issues and gaps, you can, over a period of time, address the highest priority ones and start, addressing them one by one, right? So that's what we do on our platform. There's a full issues module, full collaboration with your partners to understand what are the mitigating factors for that particular risk, how to remediate those, create action plans for those, right? And then show that continuous improvement. Now, one thing I want to also highlight, James, is that this is not a one and done process. One way of showing continuous improvements is also what happens the following year. Right now, in order for the following year, you can always look at what you did last year throughout the year, how you have closed issues. And the following year, we don't want to burden, you don't want to burden your partners asking the same thing all over again. Right. So our tool allows you to pre-populate certain data from the previous years. Whatever has closed, you can quickly verify that so that you're now only asking for the required things, What, what has changed, for example, right? You're not starting from scratch. So using those issues and remediation to and taking action on those is how we demonstrate continuous improvement.
0: So it's a very dynamic tool in that
5: Absolutely.
0: sense. Shailesh, is there a potential application here uh, in terms of clients? So seeing them as the partners in the external relationship, do you have use cases like that?
5: Absolutely. And that is an important thing because not every relationship is a vendor and client relationship that's why we also try to generally call it third parties third parties could be clients they could be partners they could be investors or whoever it is right so it is, it is it can absolutely be used to assess any type of third party relationship that you have
0: so it could be upstream of the of the person using a platform or the institution using a platform or downstream that's is that true. is that important in thinking about how financial institutions might use your platform?
5: Yeah, no, that is absolutely right. First of all, these tools are very relevant to the financial institutions, right? Financial institutions definitely have the traditional vendors and internal operations and suppliers. But there are other types of partners, like the clients, or a lot of financial institutions do business with other financial institutions in different countries. right. So if anything, there is this is even more relevant and critical to financial institutions. Financial institutions that lend money or invest in other businesses, right? I mean, they are directly or indirectly linked to supply chains that are exposed to modern slavery, and they have a responsibility to carry out the modern slavery due diligence. And as you know, the demand for the so-called ESG-aligned investment products is uh, transforming the investing landscape. So financial institutions will be at the forefront of this change. They will have to put in tools, policies, and due diligence processes in place to prevent and mitigate modern slavery risks.
0: While some governments are bringing in disclosure and due diligence laws, industry is also taking its own steps to clarify how modern slavery risks will be addressed in ESG analytical frameworks. The key question here is how modern slavery is reflected in industry benchmarks and standards. There are a number of important initiatives underway. To learn more, I caught up with two leaders in this field. I'm very pleased to welcome Adjunct Professor of International and Public Affairs, Joanne Bauer, who is based at the Rights Collab at Columbia University. Joanne, welcome to Fast the Podcast.
6: Great to be here.
0: Now, one of these projects, and the one that we're going to focus with you on today is relating to accounting standards. Can you maybe tell us a little bit about why Rights CoLab decided to focus on accounting standards and why someone who comes from a human rights background would be interested in all things in accounting standards?
6: That's such a great question. And if if anybody had told me even five years ago that I was going to be deeply immersed in accounting standards, I would have told them that that just wouldn't be possible.
0: Joanne's project focuses on the work of the Sustainability Accounting Standards Board, or SASB, looking at how companies account for the financial impact of modern slavery risks. For those listeners who don't know SASB and, and what it, how it operates, maybe let's just begin with the basics there. Is SASB a mandatory reporting framework? What kind of thing is SASB?
7: It's an
6: interesting question because one could say, I mean, it is a voluntary framework, right? And yet, to the extent that investors are backing this framework and the largest institutional investors do, in fact, the investor advisory group represents, I believe it's forty. Two or $43 trillion in assets under management that are asking portfolio companies to report against SASB. So it's not mandatory in the way yet, yet, that government regulators are saying you report against SASB or there will be some sort of action against you. Yet you are getting that action through if the investors are demanding it, right? So then if, if investors are demanding it, the large, we've seen already, BlackRock, for example, may not divest from a company if the company doesn't comply. But we've already seen in the case of, for example, Topglove, the Malaysian glove manufacturer that had, where it was revealed that there was modern slavery, there have been U.S. custom border patrol, withhold release orders against it. There's been a lot of evidence that has surfaced. BlackRock engaged with Top Glove and ultimately decided to vote against almost all of their directors. I believe all of their directors because of this finding. So in that sense, Paul likes to refer to the SASB standards and and investors as shadow regulators. So it is voluntary, with a lot of arm twisting on the part of investors, the big investors.
0: So it's not a diktat from a school teacher, but it's the norm in the high school class. And if you want to get invited to the party, you better dress a certain way. Exactly. It's an informal norm. What does it mean to be complying with these standards? Is this about weighting one's accounts or a second set of you know, is it double bottom line reporting? What kind of thing are the SASB standards?
6: Right. So the SASB standards, again, financially material standards, they're looking for standards that are comparable across the sector. The standards are distinct for 77 different industries. So they really wanted those those standards to be tailored for industries, and this presents an an issue and a project for us that I can explain momentarily.
0: So when you say financially material, what you're getting at there is that there must be a financial impact from the existence of this social risk. Is that right?
6: Yes. And and SASB actually defines it in terms of two criteria, financial impact, but also investor interest. So though it's those two measures that we have seen increase tremendously, as I said, since 2016. I mean, just many fold increase in both interest and in an understanding of financial impacts. So
0: materiality is what the market says materiality is.
6: It's what investors say materiality is.
0: Right. So what and you're saying, Professor Bao, that over the last couple of years we've seen a shift. In that understanding, I'm, I'm reminded of actually showing my age the sovereign creditworthiness crisis around 25 years ago in the Asian financial crisis. When in the early 1990s, the capital markets had thought that sovereign states were creditworthy if they met a certain set of criteria, and then there was a whole series of financial meltdowns by countries that met those criteria. So the understanding of what made a sovereign creditworthy just shifted overnight and had all sorts of knock-on effects for the risk that was on the books of different uh, financial institutions. Is that the kind of thing that we're seeing here over the last couple of years, that there's been a reassessment by investors of the relationship between some of these different social risks and the financial implications of those risks?
6: Yes. And when it comes to human capital management, I think nothing brought that home more strongly than the experience of COVID in 2020. So you just had rapid changes in the year 2020 of a recognition that very basic things like paid sick leave, how we treat essential workers, were fundamental to the resilience and continuity of that business. And that applies to supply chains as well.
0: So how is SASB's understanding of human capital management changing?
6: So, and I should say that the opportunity comes because SASB had intentions, even as it was publishing the first set of standards, that it would be revising those standards. And I believe that initially they thought, well, we'll just revise every three years. But within a year, in September 2019, the SASB board Decided, no, we're going to actually revise the standards on a project by project basis. And we're going to start with human capital management because that's what investors are really are demanding that those standards in particular be improved. So that became an opportunity for us to work with SASB on that human capital management project. And our discussions with SASB, I think, were initially let's do. I think it was Human Rights at Work, so very broadly conceived, and that's what we're working on. So um, the first project, which was funded by the Moving the Market initiative of uh, Freedom Fund, Humanity United, and UBS Optimist Foundation, focused specifically on modern slavery, and we are continuing to do that work. We're now moving, SASB spent the first I guess, a year now working through to develop a framework, a human capital. It was it, it took a brand new look at human capital across all of its standards and created a framework. And we work to try to influence that framework, which will be the basis for, for now actual setting metrics. And so from here going forward, we're going to be advising and putting forth recommendations on what those metrics need to look like.
0: Professor Bauer says that there has been a change in how the markets have understood the materiality of modern slavery risks. Earlier versions of the SASB standard were based on research that didn't show materiality associated with those risks.
6: Why couldn't they find it? Well, we think somehow it hadn't, you know, they were looking mostly in US 10K financial filings and some other reports but maybe we in the civil society community had not done a good enough job of bringing those issues to the fore. Perhaps we did, but at the time, there were no, you know, there was something, we had to let reputational risk do quite a lot of work at the time. Mm -hmm. And I think what we've got now is not just reputational risk. We also can see that there is operational risk and increasingly regulatory risk. And particularly with the due diligence laws that are coming up in the EU.
0: Professor Bao also says that the emerging ESG position of the US Securities and Exchange Commission is important, suggesting the SEC will leave it to investors to decide what's financially material.
6: And if they don't, will there be repercussions? These are questions that are being asked right now and there is a public comment period, I believe until June
0: And she says the SASB standard is likely to be globalized.
6: I should also add that while we're talking about the U.S. and the SEC, this is not strictly, SASB is not strictly at all a U.S. phenomenon anymore. It was created by Gene Rogers, founded by Gene Rogers in 2011, to fill this breach in the created by sort of U.S. securities laws to sort of punt to the reasonable investor to decide what is financially material. So we needed to create a set of standards that were financially material, that were very much kind of modeled on the same kind of structure and governance of the formal accounting, the standards, uh, FASB in the US. But SASB quickly realized, and particularly with movements in Europe with the non-financial reporting directive, uh, the effort to strengthen that, you know, these investors are invested across borders. They have to be a global standard. And so a big part of their effort has been to globalize the standard and think globally in terms of what the standard should be. So as part of that, there's been a lot, a lot of different movement, but perhaps most significantly is that the IFRS, which is the international accounting standard that, that all companies want to comply with has decided last year that maybe it should have an SSB, a sustainability standards board. And after its own comment period, it agreed that it was going to start with the existing standards of what was called the Alliance, which includes SASB, SASB being the financially material standard of the standards within the Alliance.
0: SASB's accounting standards are not the only industry effort to develop standards in this area. I'm very pleased to be joined by Dr. Akila Jardine from the Wrights Lab at the University of Nottingham. Welcome to Fast the Podcast, Dr. Jardine.
7: Thanks, James. Thanks for having me.
0: Now, Dr. Jardine, you've been very involved in a recent process involving the creation of a standard around modern slavery in the corporate world. Can you tell us a little bit about how that came to pass?
7: Absolutely. So in 2018, a group of stakeholders were invited by Baroness Lola Young of Hornsey, and the British Standards Institution to the House of Lords to take part in a discussion on the Modern Slavery Act, specifically the Transparency and Supply Chains Clause, so Section 54, and the role a standard might play in supporting business compliance with the legislation. However, we acknowledge that, you know, compliance for legislation only requires certain businesses to publish a modern slavery statements on the steps that they've taken or not taken to address modern slavery in supply chains. And clearly, they had many shortcomings and failures with the legislation. But we agreed that if we were to develop a British standard, it would need to go above and beyond business compliance with the current legislation. It must complement existing guidance and initiatives such as UNGPs. And it must really focus on continuous improvement. And so we've been working on this since about 2018.
0: So when you say a British standard, is that a particular species of norm or law or is it voluntary? What, what is a British standard?
7: So the British Standard Institution is the UK's national standards body. They produce and publish standards covering a wide range of activities uh, pertaining to products, services and systems for, for organisations. And the standard really is is an agreed way of doing something and, and really represents good practice. They're not regulations or legislations, or they don't intend to replace legislative frameworks, though they could um, inform government decisions when drafting legislation or guidance documents.
0: So, who creates these standards, Dr. Jardine?
7: So, the process of developing standard is it's one of collaboration and knowledge exchange and sharing. Standards developed in committees of experts and people interested in a particular area reaching consensus. So the committee can include academics, government officials, consumers, NGOs, businesses, and so on, who really volunteer their knowledge and time to help with the drafting of the standard.
0: And these standards, do they have some kind of official recognition or or what what gives them their, their weight, their force?
7: I think what gives them their force is that they are created by people who have a particular technical expertise in specific areas. But also, as I mentioned earlier, standards represent good practice as well. And so they're really good in guiding organizational practices to good behavior.
0: Are there any particular standards that we we might know, or if we don't know them, that maybe we encounter in in goods and services we buy that, that structure how those are delivered to us that we may not even be aware?
7: Yeah, so we have numerous standards. For instance, we have health and safety standards. We have standards that guide on sustainable procurements. We also have standards such as the ISO 26,000, which focuses on, on social responsibility as well within organisation practices. So there's numerous standards that guide the development of different products and services.
0: Dr. Jardine told me that eight out of 10 international standards start out as British standards. Eight out of 10. So the, the UK standard system is quite influential then in the broader international system is what you're saying?
7: Yes, absolutely. It really is. So we've got, for instance, uh, quality management system standards that are used international as well, that was first developed as a British standard.
0: Now, the standard that you've been involved in developing, this is specifically relating to how organisations identify and manage modern slavery risk. Is that right?
7: It is. It is. And so we decided on the guidance documents. And so it's less prescriptive advice, but reflects the current thinking and practice of of experts in the field of human rights, modern slavery, and also risk management. And so this guidance document is being used by organisations in managing modern slavery risks in the operational supply chains. It is intended to help organisations in understanding the vulnerabilities of people to modern slavery within and outside the organisation and how to manage these risks as part of legal as well as non-legal frameworks. And so organizations of all types and sizes can be implicated by modern saving practices, which can be present both in their product and labor supply chains. And so the British standard is applicable to all organizations, regardless of the type, size and the nature of activity. It's intended to be read in isolation. However, it has been written in a way that organizations can integrate it into their systems or strategic approach to operational risks. So, again, it's a guidance document intended to complement other activities addressing the risk of modern slavery and related practices, but not to replace them.
0: So, if an organization decides that it wants to pick up and use this standard, does it have to get certified against the standard or does it self certify? How does it demonstrate its compliance with that standard?
7: So, how a British standard works, they are voluntary. However, they can be verified within organisations, so either, for instance, by self declaration or an independent verification. But they use they can be used to support different existing legislative or regulatory f- frameworks. And so, this standard it's not it's not intended to be prescriptive or, or, or verified. However, it can be verified potentially through self declaration or independent verification. But it's not written in that sense or for that purpose.
0: And are there other interlocking processes? You mentioned the EU human rights due diligence discussions. Are there other things going on around uh, social impact and labour exploitation risks in, in capital markets or around disclosure beyond the Modern Slavery Act that you mentioned that you think might nudge businesses towards this standard and its implementation in the future?
7: I definitely think with a lot of initiatives being developed around ESG and the measurement of ESG, I think companies are going to have a drive to pick this up standard because of that. those conversations that are happening around that area. In particular, there's certain topics that I think that we're covering, which are extremely relevant for the ESG agenda. So when we think about labour rights and health and safety and the company's workforce generally, I think, and the treatment of workers and the relationships of suppliers and other stakeholders. I think a lot of companies are going to be finding this really, really useful when thinking about those, those processes.
0: To learn more about the British standards process, visit bsigroup.com. That's all we have time for on this episode of Fast the Podcast. In upcoming episodes, we'll look at how impact investors are tackling modern slavery, innovations in insurance markets, and new developments relating to remedy. Join us again soon. Thanks for listening. In the meantime, visit us at fastinitiative.org, on Twitter at FinComSlavery, or on LinkedIn's Fast Initiative profile. Please send us your feedback and suggestions by email to info at fastinitiative.org. And until next time, thanks for listening.
1: This is a podcast recording by United Nations University Center for Policy Research. The views expressed are those of the speakers.